Good Saturday morning to everybody. Welcome to Mortgage Matters Radio Show and the Connecticut Real Estate Edge Podcast. Along with Rob Weinberg, I'm Gary Byron. Hey, Rob, how are you? Hey, Gary, how you doing? Uh, you know, not too shabby. You know, listen, I do my best to hang in. Don't we here. all? How have you been, though? How have I been? Well, I'm I'm seeing definitely spring has sprung. You know, well, look at the sure. weather we have outside. The first of all, great weather. We got through that last part of winter without getting a, a big storm, which is nice. I don't think we're. I think we're done with snow. We're done now. Yeah, I, I mean, feel like we're done. So you got the nicer weather, and it's almost like that weather shifted and the market shifted. You know, at the same time. Um, and I said, I think it was like three shows ago. I I. I made I mistook I made a mistake when I talked a couple shows ago because I said there I'm like we're not seeing homes selling way over ask anymore we're not seeing people having to put way over bids on homes well I was wrong because I'll tell you in the last <laughs> week I, every offer I've seen accepted has been over the asking price five ten twenty thousand um, I've had clients putting in offers that are like twenty thousand over ask and they're still getting beat mm. out. Yeah, exactly. You included, right, yeah, Gary? Yeah, about 20000 so, over, yeah. So that's, you know, it shifted like so quick. Literally, January, February, everything had really simmered down. A lot of people getting offers accepted, like at list price, even a little lower. Some seller credits for mm-hmm. closing costs, lower prices. Like, things were shaping up. But I know we had always talked about, you know, this is a time in the market that is just a moment in time. And the minute that either the weather breaks and changes or interest rates shift, we're going to see a lot of buyers come back in. So we did see the rates go down a little bit last month, but now they're ticking back again. But what we have seen is that shift in the weather, that seasonality that we talk about every year. And that's created a huge frenzy of people that are like, we're going out to buy a home this spring. We're going to buy a home this summer. They're, they have a lot of intent. They're pre-approved. They're ready to go. They've been saving up their money. And this is the home buyer of 2023. This is the home buyer of spring and summer. They're serious. Let me tell you, they're not afraid of the interest rates going up a tick or two. They know they can refinance down the line, right? They're not afraid of paying a little over the asking price to buy a home because they feel confident that the values are going to continue that slow and steady progression, and they're going to make up that overbidding over the next couple of years. So you seem, it's nice. You seem confident, maybe even overconfident, that the interest rates are going to go back down. I, uh, yeah, I would say I'm I'm pretty darn confident seeing the cy- cycles over decades. The answer is absolutely, and I'm very confident in that. The part I'm not confident about is what's the timing going to be. Is this something that we're going to see a very quick shift in sentiment over the next 60 to 90 days, and we're going to see rates go down a point, point and a half over the next couple months? That's possible, but I don't think that that's probable. I think it's more going to be that slow and steady, gradual decrease in rates. We have some inflation reports coming up over the next 30 to 60 days. The CPI numbers coming out, consumer price index. Those drive inflation. Those drive mortgage rates. When we see those next couple reports come out, should they show inflation ticking down finally? Should they show we've turned the corner with that horrible, horrible increase in prices, you're going to see mortgage rates follow. Almost immediately, you're going to see them start to come down that shift in sentiment, and you're going to then see gradual lowering of rates over the next 6 to 12 months. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be the lowest now, but we're going to see that shift. What does what's happening globally, economically, how does that impact? For example, the dollars being devalued. We've already learned that Brazil, Venezuela, they're going towards the Chinese 
currency. France, uh, France, the president uh, right. of France just visited China that. last week. I don't know, and- Gary, how that directly affects interest rates. I really don't. I'm not an economist. What I can tell you is that 10, 15 years ago, it wouldn't affect interest rates almost at all. But now because of the global connection in all these economies, the media, the internet, the web, social media, one little thing happens, it's a black swan. It gets all throughout the world. And that can create a huge shift in rates. We saw a, a month or two ago, uh, I think it was Germany had changed their policy on interest rates. And it then affected the policy in the U.S. Our Federal Reserve was looking at what are they doing overseas. It's all globally connected. Japan, same thing. They had a shift in the way they were doing with with interest rates. Now that affects us. So it's not necessarily are the rates going to go up or down as a result. It's is there going to be an impact and how great is the impact? I believe, yes, there'll be an impact. And I think that like any news, it's, it's like a rubber band. It immediately slaps back. But mm-hmm. then it stops. Well, oh, you're talking about interest rates. Now let's talk yes. about the price of houses. I don't it, really feel the price of houses is globally centered. No, but is that going to go down? You, th- you think that'll go down a little bit? Will it level off or I, I will don't, it keep, continue to rise? I don't see the prices even leveling off now. I did, and they did level off, right? So we were talking about it la- end of last year, and I said, this is the winner. If they're going to level off, this is the time, okay? And we actually did see homes not going up significantly for a couple months. Now that seems to be back, right? Now we've got the overbidding and all that. But there was a couple months there where if you weren't scared by the higher rates and you weren't scared by the prices, you could have gotten a heck of a deal on a property. And many people did. Let me tell you, many people that were shut out in the spring and summer of 2022, they were waiting patiently for the opportunity, which came at the end of 22, early 23, to get that property at a little bit better price. Decrease in home prices, how can that happen? There's too many buyers, there's too little supply, okay? Are we going to see more homes come up? I hope so, and it looks like we will. Just in the inventory that I've seen come on so far in April, it looks like we're at least seeing a move from people going, okay, maybe I'll think about selling my house now, whereas before they just absolutely had no interest or ability to do it. So I think that we're going to just keep seeing like 2 to 5% a year. That's what I'm calling for, 2 to 5% a year. If you look at housing, if you look at real estate over the last 100 years, that's about what it averages. Why do you we know need that? more houses built in Connecticut? Too many people that want to move and buy, ah. and there's not enough houses here. We are in a state that has an old housing stock. We're not in an area where there's tons of builders I thought building. people were moving out of the state. So did I. But you know what? There's so many people that call me as a mortgage lender locally in Connecticut and say, hey, I'm moving to Connecticut from – I got one moving here from Denver right now. I've got one moving here from New Jersey right now. Right. And I've got another thinking about it that – lives in New York and they're thinking about either moving to New Jersey or Connecticut. They're retired, so they have their pick. And they're looking at both options. So when you really look at Connecticut from the perspective of like New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, the other surrounding states, even Massachusetts, Connecticut's like the lesser of of, of two evils in a lot of cases. All these states have high property tax, right? New York and New Jersey in a lot of areas are way higher than Connecticut. So when you're someone that grew up there or lives there and then you look at Connecticut, it doesn't seem that bad. I didn't know. Is the price? I know the price of lumber went down, but all other building supplies, it has. It's leveled off a bit. It has leveled off, you know? So here we go with today's show, Gary. Here we are. So if you're, I was self-employed for quite a while. I know. I, I you worked were. in radio and television prior to even being here at uh, a Talk of Connecticut WDRC. 
Um, but in before the leg, even even my time in the legislature, I started a company and I was a sole proprietor. I was an, I was an entrepreneur. I was a sole proprietor when I was 18 years old. Yeah, I took a little part time gig at Fox 61. I worked in television yep, and I yep. worked in radio at a, a classic rock station that's not even around anymore. Um, and I got involved in the legislature. But but what buttered my bread was being self employed. Um, and I was always told, boy. You're you're gonna have a hard time getting a mortgage. Yes, is that true? Not a, no, I don't think it's. Well, true. Why was I told? Well, what what did it used to be true? Maybe because this is I'm telling you something that several years. So the, was told several the years challenges. Ago. What are the challenges? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, there are challenges, right? There. So let me just put it out there: like getting a, a mortgage as someone who's self-employed is different than getting a mortgage as a W two wage All earner right. or somebody that is like retired. Let's go. Okay. There. So it is different. What are the common challenges? What are the main differences? Number one, it's going to be proving your income. So when you're self-employed, you have a lot more flexibility with how much and how you report your income. And I'm talking about really reporting to the IRS, okay, reporting to the feds how much you made. Some people don't put it all on their taxes or some do and then they write off everything against it. So it shows a very low profit. So that's one thing. Stability of income, depending on the type of business. I think you said you were in like radio and all that. You did some DJing, right? I owned a wedding. Yeah, DJ. There you was go. DJ so I'm weddings, sure yeah. you found that certain times a year were really good, like wedding season, and other times you might not DJ anything for a month or two. Yeah, right? it was nine, nine out of 12 months. So it was three months, January, February, and March. Dead exactly. April through well Christmas season because you had you had corporate parties, cooking on fire. You know. Yep. Well, stability of income is a big friction place for self-employed because depending on your business, you might be nine months on, three months off. You might be six months on, six months off. Or I saw a lot during the pandemic that had record years, 2018, 2019, 2020 fell on their face. Maybe they didn't make any money. Maybe they made a small amount. Maybe they lost a significant amount. Doesn't matter that they got money from the government or any of these loans or assistance. That doesn't play in when it comes to getting a mortgage. The stability of the income, specifically, how long have you been in business? And how stable is your income? Ideally, we want to see it increasing or at least stable. Irregular income. So that's what we were talking about where, like, you get it a bunch of months, then you don't. And then documentation. So self-employed is typically going to require more extensive documentation than a wage earner or a retiree. I'm talking about bank statements. Depending on the type of loan, if we're doing a business bank statement loan, we might need many, many months of business bank statements. I'm talking about one to two years worth. So it's a lot of paperwork. If you're using a conventional or a government-backed loan, we're going to need a couple years' worth of your federal income tax returns. Whereas other types of loans, we may not need that. Self-employed loans, those are challenges that come up. That's for sure. And there's a lot of tension out there. Like you said, people get told, I can't get a loan or it's going to be difficult. There are solutions. All right, so if you're a lender, how do they typically evaluate income for self-employed? Okay, so this is very important because this is an area that people have misinformation about. So I will preface the answer by saying that it depends on what lender you're working with, what programs they have access to. I have access to a lot of self-employed programs because I deal with a lot of self-employed clients. So the most common documentation is going to be or evaluation one to two years of tax returns. Okay, that's right off the boat, right off the bus, I should say, one to two years of tax returns we're going to look at as an initial qualifying for a conventional government backed loan. The next thing is, if you don't qualify with that, we're going to next look at like a profit and loss statement. 
So there are loans now. They weren't available five or ten years ago, but they are available now. They're called P&L or profit and loss loans. They're for self-employed that maybe can't show their tax returns. Maybe they didn't show all their income or they wrote off stuff they weren't supposed to. Whatever it may be, I'm not here to judge you as the IRS. I'm here to get you a mortgage. The profit and loss product is one of the best ones. We can do a one-year profit and loss statement that your CPA will assist in uh, preparing, have them sign off on it, and the underwriter will use that in lieu of tax returns. So we talk about what's your gross profit, what's your expenses, and then what's your net profit. That net profit is what the underwriter is going to use to qualify you for that mortgage. Amazing product, not a lot of people know about, but for a lot of self-employed, it can be a saving grace. And the other cool thing is the profit and loss loan is one of the few that's actually allowed on an owner-occupied home. So I had a client down in Florida refinance their condo that lives in the condo. A lot of these lower income or limited income documentation loans, you can't live there. This product you can. So it opens it up for a lot of people. Another one is the bank statement loans. These got in vogue, I would say, maybe three years ago, three, four years ago. So the way a bank statement loan works is we're going to look at either the last 12 months or the last 24 months of your bank statements. And we're going to look at all of the deposits that are on those bank statements, not transfers from one account to another or anything, but actual deposits into your bank account, typically business bank account. Then they're going to take the total of those deposits and apply an expense ratio to it, say 30% towards expenses. And then they're going to take the rest of it and divide that by either 12 or 24 months to come up with your qualifying income. So again, for self-employed that don't have tax returns, haven't filed or haven't filed really with a lot of profit, the business bank statement's amazing. The last one is the DSCR. So the last program that I love for self-employed is DSCR, debt service coverage ratio. We did an entire episode about it. I remember. This is for real estate investors that want to buy or refinance an investment property that they don't live in. And we're able to do it just based off the cash flow of the home. I have a self-employed client right now. Actually, he's closing on Friday. He's actually never filed tax returns at all. And he's uh, able to close on one of these loans using the DSCR. And he's able to because the property that he's refinancing, he actually has an income on it of about 3000 a month, and the mortgage is only going to be about 1200 a month. So he's wow, got such a big great. profit that they don't need the other income. We know the cash flow is higher than the expense. He's getting the loan. So you can see there's a lot of options for you self-employed. You mentioned documentation. So what documentation then do self-employed borrowers need to provide when they're applying for the mortgage? Right. So the documentation somewhere that a lot of self-employed get caught up. They get worried because being a business owner, I mean – Coming up with all this documentation, you might have to call an accountant or bank or just do a lot of work and you have enough to deal with on a day-to-day running your business, right? So self-employed people get concerned about the documentation. If you want to be ready, here's what you want to have prepared. Number one is one to two years of your tax returns. That's where we got to start. And I've had people that think and say to me, I'm not going to qualify for this mortgage on my taxes. But then I look at it and we can add back depreciation and we can add certain things in. And all of a sudden they do qualify when they thought they don't. So don't prejudge your tax return. Let a professional look at it. The next thing is going to be the profit and loss statement. So typically a one-year profit and loss or a year and or a year-to-date profit and loss statement from January till when you're getting the loan. That can be very, very helpful. 12 to 24 months bank statements if you're looking at a bank statement program. And then an 
DSCR loan, there's not necessarily a document you can provide because we use the appraisal. So we're going to get an appraisal very early in the process on a DSCR loan or even earlier than other types of loans because that appraisal amount of the fair market rent value is what's going to drive the entire process. And if you think you're going to get the loan and then the appraisal comes back saying that the property doesn't generate enough income, then you're not getting the loan. We'd rather know that earlier than later. So with the DSCR, know that the appraisal is the point that is going to determine that. Are there any special mortgage programs maybe or options that are available for self-employed borrowers? Yeah, there are. And I've kind of figured this out with trial and error over the years with my clients. So one that almost nobody thinks about and lenders right now will tell you you can't do it. It's called a one-year self-employed program. Uh, generally speaking, you need to be self-employed for two years to get a mortgage. So how does the one-year self-employed program work? Well, Fannie Mae has an underwriting system that's automated called Desktop Underwriter. And if you meet certain criteria and we run your loan through that, it can come back saying that we only need to verify one year of self-employment for you. Now, I had a client actually refinance their home last year that had been having problems for years refinancing. Finally, they were able to. And they were only self-employed one year. What happened was they retired and they got a job as a 1099 consultant. Same field, same everything, but they weren't on the books anymore. They were 1099. So because they had excellent credit, a ton of equity and a low debt ratio, we were able to get them a one-year self-employed approval and they were able to close on their refi, even though everyone else told them no. So that's one thing. The bank statement loans are amazing because the bank statement loans are only a little bit higher rate than the others. Those are great. The profit and loss loans, the one-year profit and loss we were talking about, there are certain loans for 1099 people Mm -hmm. that look at your 1099 form. So those are great product. And lastly, the DSCR loan we just talked about. Those are the special, more niche product for self-employed. Folks, you are listening to Mortgage Matters Radio Show and the Connecticut Real Estate Edge podcast, along with Rob Weinberg. I'm Gary Byron. You can reach Rob very easily. His phone number is 860-413-413. 3938 and online at Mortgage Matters Radio Show at gmail.com. You can email him, and his website is uh, www.robgw.com. I'm going to repeat all of that in a little while. Um, Rob, how can, how can self, how can the self employed borrowers, how can they improve their chances of getting approved for a mortgage? Well, I'll tell you, like any loan, the better your credit score is, it always helps, right? Especially when we're talking about the one-year findings, those type of products. You know, getting those with under a 700 score, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it's a lot more difficult. Um, But there are self-employed programs, just to set the record straight, that you can get approved down to a 620 credit score, okay? Um, I've even had a few down to 580 on the government loans. But with that being said, the better your credit is, the more options you're going to have, the more flexibility. Number two is going to be you want to consult with a mortgage advisor early in the process about your upcoming tax returns. So this time of year, it's tax time. So this is the perfect time for this show because I have literally dozens of clients every year that consult with me, whether they're previous clients getting ready to buy new property or refi or new clients that haven't been able to get approved before that are now just getting their gears in check and getting things ready to get approved, we consult ahead of them filing their tax returns. Because once they file, it's difficult or impossible to amend or undo. So by them doing it early, Gary, we're able to give them that coaching that they need to get approved. Can you just explain maybe a little bit um, of how that debt-to-income ratio is actually calculated? 
Yep. So the debt to income ratio is a calculation, which is going to divide your total monthly debt payments by your gross qualifying income. So what I'm talking about is they're going to take your medical bills, your auto loan, your student loan, your just any bills you have, your credit card minimum payments. They're going to take that and they're going to add to it what the new mortgage payment's going to be, the taxes, insurance, principal, and interest. Then they're going to divide that by your gross income okay. based on what type of loan you're qualifying for, and that is your debt-to-income ratio. Generally speaking, we want your debt-to-income ratio ideally to be under 40%. But in many cases, we can get it approved up to a 50% debt ratio. Okay. How about the length? Uh, how does the length of the self-employment history impact mortgage approval? Like yeah. if, somebody's, if somebody's been self-employed for most of their adult life as opposed to somebody just within the last five years? Great question, because the longer you're self-employed, the more flexibility you're going to have when it comes to getting a loan. So generally speaking, two years is required. Oh, if you okay. come to me and say you've only been self-employed for six months or a year, not always, but most of the time, we're going to need more than that, okay? So two years is really the bottom line for almost almost any of these programs. The thing is that once you're five years or greater, you get preferential treatment. So there's a specific loan through uh, Freddie Mac. There's a specific loan that allows one-year tax return as long as you've been self-employed for at least five years, okay? So if we can show that you've had your business, been self-employed for five years— automatically at that point, you only have to be qualified for your most recent year tax return. So if you had a really bad year in 2021, <laughs> but a really good year in 2022, that might really help you out. It might take a loan that would get denied and turn it into an approval. So that's huge when you've been self-employed more than five years. Um, just understand that you know a larger down payment can sometimes be required if you're looking for that one-year approval. There's some ways that we can manipulate it if you're under five years, but generally you either have to have really high credit or a really good down payment and a low debt ratio to get that one year. How do the lenders even evaluate income for borrowers who've got income from, like, let's say, multiple sources? Let's say somebody's got a rental property or something. Yeah, so a lot of self-employed are entrepreneurial, so they're yeah. into owning properties, multiple streams of income. So how do we evaluate that? Well, first of all, we need to look at what's the length of history for the rental income. Is this a property they just bought three months ago, or is this a property they've owned for a couple years? Right. If they've owned it for a couple years, then we're going to divert to the tax return to look at the rental income. Also, mortgage payment histories. If you have multiple rental properties, in most cases, you have at least a mortgage or two, right? Mm -hmm. So we're going to be looking at the history of the repayment on those mortgages. The idea is that even if a tenant didn't pay you, are you responsible? Are you paying it? We want to see zero late payments in the last 12 months, ideally zero in the last two years, but definitely zero late payments on your mortgages for the last uh, 12 months, without a doubt. And we really need to look at the last one to two years tax returns, as we were discussing, to see the different income that you're receiving and how it's trending. Is it stable? Is it going up? Is it going down? So that's how we evaluate self-employed. What are income. some other unique income situations that borrowers may they could encounter when trying to qualify for a mortgage. Yeah, so we've seen a big change and shift in this over the last year or two with the pandemic and freelancing. So first of all is the seasonal income we touched on. Mm -hmm. Certain businesses only do business during a certain time of year. Like a, think about a snowplow driver. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. They're not working in the summer. Maybe they're doing lawns instead, but they're not doing that. So seasonal income is a big one. Freelance jobs, I'm specifically talking about Uber, Lyft, 
DoorDash. In this new economy, people are trying to make ends meet any way they can. And I've had a lot of people come to me that drive part time, you know, on the side for these companies. Just know that you have to have a two year history almost exclusively when you're 1099 or freelance. Instacart is another one. Just any of these driving apps where you can make money doing that. The last one is paid in foreign currency. So I've got some clients that they live in the U.S., but they're actually working for international companies. They get paid in international currency. That can be a little complicated to sort. Final question for you. I'll give you just a couple of minutes to answer. Um, How can a mortgage advisor such as yourself help the self-employed borrowers kind of navigate their way through the mortgage application yeah, process? Great question. So many self-employed try to go at it alone because they're entrepreneurial and they really try to do everything themselves. But just like running your business, you want to hire experts. You want to have the team. So the mortgage advisor can really help you by providing guidance on what documentation is going to be needed. Are you going to need to a year or two of tax returns or can we uh, qualify you on a profit and loss loan or a DSCR loan where that's not required. So that's somewhere they can help. They can also help guide you to the specific different uh, programs that'll work for your particular situation. Whether you're buying a multifamily home, it might be one product. If you're buying a single family to live in as an owner-occupied, that's going to be a different product. So helping to guide you through that and get you in the right spot with what program's going to work. And then lastly, I would say the relationships that can fund unique scenarios. So what I'm talking about about is I've got relationships with multiple different banks, especially on these self-employed things. So just because my bank or my underwriter says we don't do this loan doesn't matter to me. I'll farm it out to one of our third-party originations or third-party processes, and then we can have we can still get you the loan. We can still process the loan here, but we have access to these other more outside-of-the-box products. What percentage of your clients, Rob, are self-employed? I'd say about 30%. Really? A third, huh? I would say, yeah. Is that because of the instability of the economy and or corporations downsizing? No, I would say that I think... uh, I'd expect that. Yeah, I would say that it's because just a lot of people are entrepreneurial by nature now with the way the market shifted. And then entrepreneurs in general like to build wealth. Well, real estate's the best way. So a lot of people, they'll have a business, but they also want a real estate portfolio. Or they'll have a real estate portfolio already, but they want to start a business alongside it. So that's definitely big. And I think it's going to continue. A lot of people are doing self-employment as a side job, not necessarily their main job. But you got to factor that in too, right? I mean, income's income. As long as they have the history to be able to support with that if they're doing a self-employment side gig or part-time mm-hmm. almost without exception it's going to be a two-year requirement all right that. i thought your number would have been half that i was I expect you to say 15, 12 15 percent maybe wow folks you've been listening to mortgage matters radio show in the connecticut real estate edge podcast you can check out and get more information not only on this show but other topics that we've discussed in the past on his website at www.robgw.com. If you'd like to email him, maybe set up an appointment, um, maybe just ask a question. By the way, you can even get that question answered on these very airwaves. Simply email mortgagemattersradioshow at gmail.com. And if you'd like to set up an appointment with Robin, why wouldn't you want to? That's easy to do as well. Call this number, 860-413-3938. Again, 860-413-3938. Rob Weinberg, I'm Gary Byron. Thank you so much for listening to Mortgage Matters Radio Show and the Connecticut Real Estate Edge Podcast. Until next weekend, 
Have a good one, everybody. So long.